You're tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Former Governor Neil Abercrombie submitted an opinion piece that was published in the Star Advertiser this weekend. He said he felt compelled, said the record straight, after hearing the Office of Wine Affairs mischaracterize a ceded land settlement dating back to a decade ago as a deal that swindled Native Hawaiians. Abercrombie called on OHA to stop playing the victim in its portrayal of the agreement that was signed off by all the OHA trustees and the state attorney general's office during Abercrombie term as governor. We talked to Abercrombie earlier this morning about the deal and whether the settlement ought to be renegotiated rather than to strike down a ban on residential development in Kaka'akumakai. I just felt that uh, that some of the pronouncements by the COO who has come on, on the scene, you know, 10 years later, he could have used a, a little bit more research to get his facts straight as to whether or not that uh, agreement, that settlement was imposed on the uh, OHA trustees. It, it was the exact opposite. That settlement was my administration working with and supporting the desire of the uh, trustees at that time to effectuate a settlement which would give them the opportunity to end what had been more than 20 years of litigation that had gotten nowhere. If I had to summarize it, I I would say the trustees and my administration faced a situation where they had 100 percent of nothing and they were entitled, and I use that word advisedly, they were entitled to hundreds of millions of dollars in compensation. And so we tried to figure out a way to accomplish that in the wake of the great 2008 recession, when I was trying to pull the state out of a a quarter of a billion dollar deficit for that, the first year of my administration. And they they said uh, this uh, land acquisition would accomplish a great deal of that. So it was mutually consented to. Then the legislature was brought in and the legislature passed it for the simple reason is that there was a a common agreement between the OHA trustees and, and the administration and the legislature said, fine, that, that deals with a good portion of, of what uh, funds were owed as a result of, of ceded land, et cetera. Well, I recall, you know, so, you had uh, negotiated, you know, long and hard with, you know, the, f- the former chair, the late uh, Colette Machado. That's it, right. My recollection was that, you know, OHA then had a land base. A land base, yes, yeah, exactly. And they understood that they were going to have to come back to the legislature for the consultation and and negotiation with respect how best to use the land base, particularly where where, uh, uh, residences were concerned. There's a big difference between being a private developer for profit, uh, which was essentially what had been the HCDA, the the Hawaii Community Development Authority, had essentially uh, taken the, those acres down there, Kaka'akumakai, and said back in 2006, let's let's turn this over to a private developer for, uh, and, and there's nothing surreptitious about it. There's nothing evil or below the, the radar. They knew they were making a connection with and giving a sanction for a private development. And of course, there was opposition to that because people didn't want the high rise. I was among them. I, I was among the opposition to that. But OHA is, is not a private developer. Unfortunately, there's some indication that at least some of the trustees now want to assume the role that uh, Alexander and Baldwin had. And I, I've advised them, uh, uh, both privately and publicly, that that won't work. That's not really the mission of OHA. And I, and I say that as someone who was in the legislature when uh, OHA was created. So I'm, I'm very, very familiar with what the legislative intent was after the Constitutional Convention in the late 70s. OHA was brought into uh, existence. Their responsibility is for Hawaiians, for Native Hawaiians. And so they're not there to, to make money for themselves. They're there to, uh, to utilize such funds as they're able to generate for advancing the cause of uh, Native Hawaiians, particularly with in relation to uh, DHHL, housing and shelter and prosperity for Native Hawaiians. I, I think right now, if uh, OHA can get back together with the with the legislature and with Governor Green and see how we can come to an accommodation again, an agreement again, as to to the role of residences as opposed to high rise, you know, out of state, out of out, out of nation profit-taking, I think something can be uh, arranged. Well, you wrote that uh, opinion piece, I think, 
because you felt that the the facts were being misrepresented that you know yes. oho was playing the victim and that there was some mm-hmm. a connotation that somehow the hawaiians got swindled in this uh, settlement agreement yes i think i think that's over with i met with some people from oha yesterday let me put it this way that's over with they understand it was misrepresented they weren't telling lies or they weren't trying to attack bill may ahula or, or uh, david louis my attorney general or charlene i know our deputy and some of the and or or colette for that matter they're just concerned that they need to come to some kind of, of resolution with respect to what they're going to be able to do with Kaka'ako Makai in terms of advancing the interests of Native Hawaiians. So I'm quite content that that issue has been resolved satisfactorily. And I believe that those individuals who helped put this together are quite content. And I'm sure if Colette was was with us today, she would be content that that issue has been resolved. As far as I'm concerned, everything with respect to uh, the Office of Hawaiian Affairs and the history that brings us to today is is copacetic. Well, you know, there have been uh, ideas floated about possibly renegotiating another settlement, you know, whether it's the Stadium Entertainment yes. District or some other parcel that you can arrange a land swap. Yeah. Catherine, unfortunately, and it's understandable, uh, people, when they're looking at an issue, grab a hold of certain phrases or, or characterizations like entertainment district. Why somebody put that name on on what we're trying to do with housing and the stadium and Division One football and so on and so forth is is beyond me. I mean, when you use when a, a phrase like uh, enter, entertainment district enters, it, you know, you think what is it? Christians and lions. We're going to build a coliseum and then bread and circuses. I mean, given the, the circumstances of inflation and affordable housing requirements and so on, to try, start talking about entertainment district is, well, it's, it, it's antithetical to getting anything done. In your conversations with OHA yesterday, were they open well, to renegotiating wanna, a mischaracterize. deal? Uh, let me put it this way. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, what I did yesterday was make sure that uh, some conversations were held that cleared the air. That, that, that's it. No, with respect to your question, I wouldn't know. I don't know if the word swap is the right answer. My opinion is, is, is Kakako Makai needs to be developed. They already have it. Uh, to, to try and overturn the whole thing and then go into something else entirely, I think would, would be very difficult to do, number one, and, and extraordinarily time-consuming. I mean, the whole stadium, housing, commercial, retail conflict, I guess the only thing you can say, I mean, it's all it's been up in the air for years. They haven't been able to settle anything. How in the hell can you... Then say to, say to OHA, well, why don't you just go out there and, and we'll do this all over again and, and you take over? Well, that's that's not going to happen, and it, 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 it's ridiculous. Besides, OHA is not going to go into 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 building and marketing and managing a stadium. That isn't going to happen. But what could happen, what does make sense, is to think about the housing side. I'm hoping that Governor Green and the legislature will get together with OHA and figure out what do we need to do now down in Kakaako Makai to give OHA the opportunity to have some discussions and make Kakaako Makai into something that's compatible with everybody's interests, including OHA. And in the process, can we also figure out how to work with OHA, come to an agreement with OHA about how we can come to a universal settlement with respect to money that's owed to OHA as a result of ceded land revenues that should should be going there. I think that can be done. And, and uh, my, my first thought there is, is there's the housing aspect. Governor Green has emphasized uh, again and again, and he emphasized it as, as a principal element uh, in his campaign, housing. And he cited the housing in particular for Halaba. That's how I prefer. No entertainment district. Let's talk about Halaba. That's what it is. There's 100 acres at Halaba that used to be housing. Governor Waihei, Governor Cayetano, myself have been public for months. That area should be housing. Uh, they should work something with DHHL, and I think that uh, OHA could play a very, very useful role in accomplishing the housing side. But the stadium thing, let that work itself out separately. That has to be that has to be an entity uh, un- unto itself. That acreage should be separated out. So I would say of the 100 acres, there's probably at least 70 acres out there that can be devoted to housing. Governor Green's for it. The former governors are for it. And maybe there, there's a way for, for OHA to get involved in, in that as well. Well, yeah. Yeah, I yeah, mean, okay. It, All right. And, and a way Fair enough. to get involved in housing down in Kakako Makai. 
Uh, we're talking about housing rather than, than for-profit yeah. high-rises. Well, no, that's not going to happen. If OHA's, you know, knocking down the ban, right, I mean, what's to stop KS from, from saying, well, we want that too? Because KS is in there for profit. That's a different <laughs> story entirely. Yeah. But well, that, that's another that was, conversation to be had. And even there, that's mm-hmm. all right with they want to have that conversation, but they're not interested in doing uh, what uh, what I'm talking about and what other trustees, I think, are talking about, which is if you if you have housing down, let's take the medical schools down there. Let's take the demographics of the uh, beneficiaries of DHHL, for example. Those who did not get their homesteads and are now 65, 70, 75 years old, they're not going to get a homestead and go get a mortgage for $700,000 and get a mortgage for 30 yeah. years. What yeah. you need is a home. You need to re-emphasize 2023. And you have to understand with the 50% blood quantum and, and 25% blood quantum to, to inherit, that's going to disappear in this generation, Catherine. It's going to disappear. There won't be anybody eligible. So what we need to do is take another look at, at, at that. Uh, why can't uh, a deal be made to bring uh, senior housing, assisted living in conjunction with the medical school with a footprint that doesn't, and, and, and a view plane that doesn't, that, that doesn't do anything more than what the gold bond building and the APHIS building does down there yeah, right now? Yeah, and, and I recall that, that conversation about, you know, doing something with DHHL and sure. rentals. Uh, all I'm saying is is that within the existing footprint, without violating any view planes, Malka or Mackay, mm-hmm. without in, uh, inhibiting any access uh, to the shoreline and to the ocean, it's perfectly possible to have housing that meets acute needs right now without, without violating anybody's environmental sense or aesthetic senses. What it takes is some people who don't have a a, a political agenda where they get to do what they want and nobody else does. What it takes is if people sit down and and ho'oponopono this and work it out. That was former Governor Neil Abercrombie, who was in office when uh, the Office of Hawaiian Affairs was created. He was uh, also the one who signed the historic $200 million settlement between the state and OHA in 2012. Support local news coverage on HPR. Navy officials have announced they will open a clinic to address health issues possibly associated with jet fuel exposure. What we want to happen is for people to come in, find out what's happening to them, and work them up thoroughly so that there is a connection we can pursue it. Meanwhile, we'll be working very closely with the Department of Health and EPA to get the defueling plan approved. It's not yet approved. It's with the Department of Health and they're reviewing it. Once that's approved, we're gonna do iterative planning in partnership with the Department of Health and the EPA to find ways to move the timeline left. First, there's a technical, engineering, methodical and deliberate removal of the fuel. And the other is active listening, compassionate and empathetic conversations with our military families and the community. Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org. Four to one. That was the vote against Ikaika Anderson, Governor Josh Green's nominee to head the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. And that's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Blaze Lovell on the line to tell us more. Hi, Blaze. Hi, Catherine. So, yeah, contentious hearing. It was, and that four to one vote against Ikaika Anderson, that was really despite the fact that, you know, he actually got quite a bit of support uh, from the public and even from some from former governors, including Governor Neil Abercrombie and John Waihe'e, and several uh, former DHHL directors. But there's also strong opposition. And a lot of Anderson's opponents yesterday, you, you know, they, they noted some of the political baggage he's carrying into this office. He's a former city councilman, and so some of his work there was brought up, uh, particularly a controversial project that he um, at first supported in Waimanalo, uh, the ballpark project out there that was 
uh, put forward by a former mayor, Kirk Caldwell. And there are some other things. There is his lieutenant governor uh, candidacy and the support from Super PAC be changed now. That was one reason why Senator Leslie Hara said he voted no on him. Uh, but the concern for a lot of the senators also was just his performance in uh, budget hearings in the last couple of weeks um, since he took office. Uh, and it should be pointed out, you know, he's been getting grilled for the last several weeks as soon as he stepped in the door in these budget hearings. And he's sort of, you know, kind of new to a lot of this. He hasn't held a state director job before, and he was still trying to get himself familiarized with a lot of the nuances that comes with, you know, being in a really tough position. Yeah, I mean, it it certainly seemed like he was a lightning rod, and uh, the senators didn't give him, didn't cut him any slack, even though he'd just been on the job, I think, for about a week or so, right, Uh, during that first first go-around. Uh, right. I mean, there was that first hearing where, you, you know, they were uh, digging into him like he had been working at the job for 10 years. And, and in, you know, rejecting his confirmation, Miley Shimabokoro, the chairwoman of the Hawaiian Affairs Committee, says she has been acknowledged that, you know, this is a really almost an impossible job to, to, to please everyone. But, um, you, you, you know, apparently to them, you, you might not be up to stuff. And, uh, you know, of course, their decision was met with quick rebuke from Governor Josh Green. He accused the Senate of playing politics with his nomination and not giving him, um, uh, you know, a fair shot. I think the statement he said was that today the pub, the people lost is the word the governor lose. And, lost out when he was rejected. Yeah, and your article uh, refers also to the uh, uh, firing of a former public information officer, uh, you know, when, when Ikaike Anderson took over. Yeah, so, sort of another wrinkle in this, and Shimabukor pointed this out, is that there seemed to be some tension between staff in DHHL and the governor's office, and this is this might sort of be wrapped up into the differing views of how to approach, how to spend this $600 million. You know, on the one hand, the Hawaiian Homes Commission approved the plan last year to mostly spend it on infrastructure. Um, obviously, Governor Green wants to build more houses, and so, so somewhere in this, the former PIO, Cedric Duart, was uh, apparently, according to William Isla, fired sometime, um, you, you know, I, after Isla left and during Anderson's brief tenure. And um, when the senators tried to dig into that, and Anderson just said that he was advised by the attorney general's office not to talk about that. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I, I know generally uh, uh, those PIO positions, you know, uh, are at will that that. Uh, you know, whoever comes in is free to uh, hire their own uh, people. Um, but yeah, you wonder what what uh, what was behind that. If it had anything to do with, uh, you know, uh, Governor Josh Green's campaign. You know, when he talked about his mother-in-law uh, being on the uh, homelands list. So yeah, we're not sure how that all played in there. Right, and it sort of you know gets to this other dynamic of you know is this sort of indicative of how the governor's office and the Senate are, you know, are they going to have a tense relationship, kind of like how the Senate had a hard time with Ige and Ige had a hard time with the Senate? If this is just, you know, maybe a one-off and that doesn't speak to it, or if this is just sort of the start of four long years for everybody. Yeah, and I guess we'll see then uh, if uh, Ikaika Anderson uh, will have the votes uh on, you know, with the rest of the senators when this comes on the floor. Yeah, he still gets to go to the floor despite the committee's recommendation. Uh, but when I spoke to Shimabu Bokoro, the chairwoman, she said she doesn't think he does have the vote in the full Senate. Um, you, you know, in the past, governors have pulled their nominees before the floor vote so that they don't have to face that. But, you know, things could change. Uh, votes flip often, and depending on when, you know, there's still quite a bit of time left session and still time for him to possibly build support. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. But thanks so much, Blaze. Thanks. That was reporter Blaze Level with today's Reality Check. You can read a story online at civilbeat.org.
Maui Mayor Richard Bisson is seven weeks into his administration. He is focused on getting his cabinet members confirmed uh, by the county council, uh, like we're seeing now with uh, Governor Josh Green. And that process of confirmation starts next week. Bisson says getting past that will provide some stability for getting work done. That's a big focus. We got our budget due uh, next month as well to the council. and. You know, we, like I said, seven weeks in, but, you know, this was a budget that, you know, ordinarily you'd, you'd have the, the 12 months in between budgets to put together. So that's a little accelerated. And these are not complaints, by the way. These are just observations and uh, realities. Well, any um, hints yeah. Any hints on uh, uh, what you're going to bat for in the budget? You know, we're trying not to, not to increase too much. We've met with all of our departments, which is all 16 of them, and uh, with our budget director and some of our admin staff and, you know, trying to see where we can cut. You know, the only thing I have to go on, Catherine, is my past experience as a director at the state and the, and the county level in how we, you know, how we fashion a budget. So I've never put a budget this size together. It's over a billion dollars, yeah. So I think we're probably a little more on the fiscally conservative side, if that's a... Uh, we had to be, you know, categorized, and I think we are trying to be responsible and sensible in our requests. Again, a lot of these requests started, you know, under the previous administration, and so we're new, new players at this, and some of the directors are holdovers, like the police chief, the fire chief, uh, liquor, uh, liquor chief, and all those folks, so they've already uh, might have had some preliminary discussions on what to expect so uh, probably would be better to ask them what, what it's like dealing with us but I think we uh, yeah we want to present a budget that the council understands we you know reflected on and thought about and so nothing in particular stands out with me to, to talk about as far as any big purchases or anything like that I think maintaining some of what was started makes sense because a lot of effort and energy and resources have already gone into some of these programs and so we do want to see them you know completed so i would say um still learning still learning the process and, and hoping to work you know work well with the council well you know when we talked to mayor Derek kawakami you know he was saying gosh you know we didn't anticipate being in a position where our coffers would be in a good spot you know because of the hotel room tax funding uh, the excise tax and so they're in a much better place than they feared initially, right, as you were going through this pandemic. And I imagine, you know, you're facing the same thing too, right? Your your hotel rooms are pretty full or have been pretty full. Yeah, I think in that, looking at it in that regard, I think we're pretty fortunate on Maui. Uh, I will say we do not have a GET uh, a half percent like the other three counties. We were the only county that, that did not opt in for that. Although this session, we are requesting it and I think we have the support well, I know we have the support of our council, and I think we may have the support of our delegation um, there on Oahu, that are our Maui delegation that's there. So I'm hoping that we will, you know, be in line with the other three counties and, um, you know, get some of that uh, that GT. I mean, we know it has an impact. It can have an impact on our local population, clearly. That's not what it was intended to have happen. But again, we are looking at that as another source of, of revenue, of course. It won't kick in probably till you know, sometime next year at the earliest. Uh, but I think that was what uh, Mayor Kawakami was talking about. They do, you know, we all would have had that, but we, we didn't have that yet. Uh, the TAT is another one that does bring in some additional funding for our county. Yeah, I think our hotel rooms and, and some of our other tax revenues look promising from, from what I'm told. The official report has not been has not come out yet or the projections. I don't know if you've talked to the uh, hotel uh, and lodging uh, industry uh, with the president's uh, speech cautioning against the resort fees because we have seen, you know, a, a number of those uh, rise, you know, o- over the years. Any thoughts on that? Well, I have met with aspects of the Hotel and Lodging Association you know, I gotta tell you, I, I'm still not clear on all the different, you know, acronyms and the letters, which ones make up. You know, and I'll say, oh, you guys are this group. Oh no, that's the other group. We're this group. So, you know, I understand how much revenue we get from our hotel and lodging, and of course, some of the illegal transient vacation rentals and short-term rentals. There's a lot of, a lot of sources that, 
that get hit with that those different taxes. But I think there's always going to be this discussion about what is you know too much on the industry, what is not enough, because we're always having to talk about balance, the impact that our tourist uh, industry have uh, in the good ways, which is of course bringing money into our county and in some of the unintended ways of you know putting more stress on our on our resources our roads our access for some of the local community to to other areas in the island so you know it comes with a blessing and it comes with uh, you know some caution but i know the sense that you know everyone is going to feel like they pay more than their fair share or maybe you know be given a break is is a I guess that's a philosophical question we need to have or a policy question. And I have not sat at the table with all the players, if you will, to, to have that discussion. I have my own uh, personal opinion, but I'm, I'm open to talking to folks about where that balance is. And I think that's constantly the struggle of government is to try to find balance, uh, especially in this particular industry between the local community's sentiments and quality of life. I mean, obviously, the article that just came out, um, I want to say Monday, the, the poll that was taken was, was an gave some interesting results, confirmed some of what people thought, and I think probably surprised some people a little bit on the attitudes towards the tourist industry. So I think, yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to meeting uh, with, I guess, the larger group to hear what they have to say about it. But I think, I think we're always going to have an eye on balancing our tourist industry. Well, what are your hopes? I know HTA had just put out the request uh, for uh, proposals on the um, marketing and the management of our visitors. What do you hope for Maui County? You know, I, I was not involved in any of those discussions and in, in some of the changes that happened last year, and I know that went in a different direction than, than I think some people expected or thought, and from what I understand, still being discussed. You know, as far as how Maui feels, I, I don't even know I can speak for their industry, but I think we, we get a lot of uh, public or, or a lot of, uh, you know, really good advertising, if you will, about people who want to come and stay in our place here. I, I don't think we're lacking exposure, I think is the word. Yeah, well, Maui, uh, Maui is a noka'oi. Everybody knows that. <laughs> yeah, I think so. So I, I think we're in a little bit different situation. Certain places really do have to, you know, budget a lot and play up that, you know, we, we now we're at times where we're, we're hitting capacity or max capacity, over capacity. So I think I think our perspective is probably a little bit different in terms of you know how we advertise uh, that part of the industry. But again, I'm I'm more than happy to sit with folks from you know all sides to see where we can strike that happy balance. You know, part of the I guess you know incentive or the struggle maybe is to get people to your place. But once you got them there, now what do you do? How do you handle the the capacity? How do you make it a good experience, not only for the visitor, but for the local industry, you know, the local folks that live here and mm -hmm. the industry itself? I mean, I think that's what we really got to talk about is once they're on island, what do we do then? I don't think we're having any problem getting people to come here. Uh, I don't really think that's our struggle, if you, if you ask me. I think it's more like, what do we do when they're here and how many can we handle and what kind of policies do we put in place so that everybody has a pleasant experience, you know, those that visit and then those that, you know, obviously service the visitors or who don't service the visitors but come into contact. And who live here. Through impact, yeah. And that was Maui Mayor Rick Bisson rounding out the conversations that we've had with our county mayors. We regularly check in with them to get a pulse on their communities across our island state. Support for HPR comes from Green Building Hawaii, providing energy and sustainability consulting services throughout the islands, assisting clients with building and energy code compliance, featuring LEED certification services. GreenBuildingHawaii.com. Aloha, I'm Bert Lum. If you're interested in science, technology, and Hawaii's innovation economy, Tune in to Bite Marks Cafe on Hawaii Public Radio HPR1 today at 6.30 p.m.
Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, providing a variety of art experiences for the community. Learn more about art classes, workshops, and drop-in art making for adults and keiki at honolulumuseum.org. We are hearing a lot about green energy these days, and that includes hydropower as a possible alternative to oil. HPR Savannah Harriman Poet joins us to give us a bit of history of using the power of water as a source of energy. Good morning. Good morning. Yes. So hydropower has been a topic of discussion on the forefront of folks' minds because, as you said, we are exploring new alternatives for energy uses as we try to meet our green energy goals. But it has also been a topic of discussion lately because of a project on West Kauai that has gotten some pushback. Kauai community members are suing the state's Department of Land and Natural Resources over an environmental impact statement for the Kauai Island Utility Cooperative's latest major hydropower project. This project has been proposed, so it has not been developed yet, but we are already seeing some hiccups in that development. I spoke to uh, Elena Bryant. She's an associate attorney with Earth Justice, and she's representing the plaintiffs. She laid out the details of this rather complicated case. For that project, uh, they are seeking a long-term water lease. So they're looking at a 65-year water lease to divert 11 million gallons of water per day from the Waimea River watershed. And the BLNR is the agency that would be making a decision on the long-term water lease that KIUC needs to run its project. And so part of the uh, required approvals that need to be done is um, HIPAA compliance, which is Hawaii's Environmental uh, Policy Act. And they have prepared an environmental assessment, and they've determined, based on their assessment, that this project is not going to have a significant impact on the environment. And DLMR basically rubber-stamped their environmental assessment and agreed, uh, yep, there's no significant impact here and granted them uh, what's called a FONSI. That's a finding of no significant impact. With that FONSI, they are not required to prepare um, a more full environmental review of this project, which is done through an environmental impact statement. So the concerns that our clients have are that the environmental review document that KIUC prepared doesn't fully analyze the impacts to the streams the um, native stream species, the stream habitat, that a long-term renewal of these diversions would cause. So that sounds like a lot of paperwork, but basically what residents and community members are concerned about is just taking that much water to power a project like this out of the stream might have ecological impacts that we aren't seeing fully examined in the environmental assessment report that KIUC submitted to the DLNR. They are looking at diverting 11 million gallons of water a day on a rolling average. When I reached out to KIUC, they did clarify that that's a number that stakeholders, including some plaintiff organizations, agreed upon in mediation in 2017. But those plaintiffs and other stakeholders are saying, wait, 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 not all the terms of that agreement have been met. So you can't just take that value um, at face without doing all the due diligence that we asked for. So they've been talking about this for five years. It's been a long time to develop. Absolutely. Absolutely. And all of the environmental assessments that are in that document that was submitted have been also going on for many decades as long. But hydropower goes back much, much farther than that. I think because it comes into conversation with other um, renewable powers like solar, like wind, we have this perception of it as new to our state. It's new. It's not new. It is not. And I wanted to take a moment to just really get into the history of that so people understand our relationship to it and why it's nitty gritty. First off, hydropower means using water for power. So that's wave energy, ocean thermal energy conversion, or or the natural flow of a river to generate power. We're just, just just talking about that last one. And that kind of power has been in Hawaii for decades. In fact, a little tidbit that I found when I was doing research on this from the Sierra Club is that the first streetlights 
in Honolulu were powered using hydropower in 1888. Yeah, and that was King Kalakaua that developed it. it in fact, uh, I just learned that there's a, the remnants of an old hydroelectric plant back there in Nuuanu near the reservoir, which I'm dying to go hike back to. But yeah, it's interesting to learn that our history goes back that far. Yeah, so that physical stru- infrastructure is still in place, and many of those p- old power plants are still operational. Many of those power plants were built by plantations, and that is why this is a a issue that is deeply felt by communities. We talk about plantation history oftentimes on Maui, where there are operational hydropower plants and what that means for water stream diversion. But that's true of Kauai as well, where Alexander Baldwin actually built the first um, power, hydropower plant in 1906. So hydropower uh, can be non-consumptive, but that's not a given. So the community, before they sign on off on this 65-year lease that KIUC is asking for, just really wants to make sure that they can understand how that water is going to be used. Yeah, and there's a lot of rules on the books now that didn't exist when King Kalakaua, uh, uh, you know, started this thing up. So, yeah, lots of hoops to jump through. Absolutely. All right, well, thank you so much, Savannah. Thank you. We've been talking with HPR Savannah harriman Pote about Hawaii's hydropower industry and history. You can uh, read her stories at hawaiipublicradio.org. tune to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. And you know, before winter ends, try your hand at spotting a kioaia. These long-billed shorebirds spend their winters here. They're not too common on the main Hawaiian islands, so we have their call for you from the Makale Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo Professor Patrick Hart with your Manu Minute. The kioea, or bristle-thighed curlew, is a medium-sized shorebird with a wingspan of almost 36 inches, a long, downwardly curved bill, and long, grayish legs. They're mostly mottled brown and get their English name from the very noticeable bristle-like feathers at the base of their thighs. With a total population size of about 7,000 birds, kioea breed in the summer in Alaska and make the long, non-stop flight back to Hawaii and other islands in the South Pacific every August to escape the Alaska winter. Adults generally fly back to Alaska to breed in early May, but once the juveniles arrive for their first winter in Hawaii, they stay for two or three years because they don't breed until they get older. This makes it possible to see them year-round in Hawaii primarily in typical shorebird habitats, like wetlands, shorelines, and grassy areas. If you see a bird near the shore with a really long, downward curved bill, with a call that's been described as sounding like whistles of an adoring pursuer, you're probably looking at a kioea. The word kioea means to stand high, as on long legs and they were important in early Hawaii as they were one of the few birds mentioned in the kumulipo, or Hawaiian creation chant. Kiawea are the only known shorebird to actively use tools for foraging. They've been observed grabbing pieces of coral in their bills and rearing their head back in a big arc to forcefully toss the coral at seabird eggs to break the shell so they can feed on the contents. While kioea love eggs, they also feed on crustaceans, small fish, and insects. Kioea are the only shorebird that can't fly for a period of time when they're molting new feathers in Hawaii, making them susceptible to predators. This is likely one reason why they are much more common in the predator-free northwestern Hawaiian islands like Midway and Laysan. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. 
Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, committed to helping preserve, protect, and restore the biological diversity of Hawaii Island. Friendsofhakalauforest.org. It's around this time that many of the hundreds of bills introduced this session will die because they have yet to get a hearing. For those who are new to the process, we take you inside the state capitol. The conversation, Stephanie Hahn paid a visit to the Public Access Room and the Legislative Reference Bureau. Public Access Coordinator Virginia Beck walks us through the ropes from the drafting of a bill to getting it heard. This room, the public access room, was created by the legislature to provide the public with what they need in order to participate at the legislature. So we do a lot of teaching about the legislative process. We have handouts that people can take. There's a place for people to come and work here when they're at the Capitol. And what's changed a lot over the years is how wonderful the website is now. So we do a lot of coaching of people on the website and helping them testify over Zoom, for example. That's something that's just came up last year. A really nice improvement. So let's say I'm with an organization, you know, I have some community involvement with a group, and I'm interested in passing a law. Could be anything from, like in Switzerland, they say, you know, you have to sell two guinea pigs and not one (laughs) guinea pig because they need to be in a pair, or something like Iceland, which is you have to have gender pay equity in companies that have more than 25 people. Can you walk me through the steps? Sure. We would encourage you to to really try to focus yourself first off to summarize the problem or the opportunity and what it is you want the law to do. And then we would help to point you to a legislator, whether it's to your own legislator or maybe the chair of the committee that the bill would likely go through or uh, someone who's introduced similar legislation in the past. Because in the state of Hawaii, you need to find a representative or a senator to introduce a bill. Does this senator representative have to be in my home district? No, but it's a good place to start because, you know, you're their constituent. So if they are in favor of what your idea and are willing to champion it, that would be great. But if not, you can go farther afield. How would I find out if someone else has propose this type of bill? The legislature's website makes it really pretty easy to search for bills, and they've got a special web page called Reports and Lists that has a subject search. So you could do a search for, say, the word equity, and it would bring up all of the bills that have the word equity in their bill title, description, or keywords. And then we could help you decipher what what your results are, and you could then maybe talk to the introducer of the bill and try to get on board to make that bill move forward. That usually involves asking for a hearing, because for bills to survive at the legislature, they have to be heard. So you go to the chair of the first committee the bill is referred to and ask them to please hear your bill, and then you get a chance to testify on the bill. I'm a little intimidated, let's say, and I'm just an ordinary citizen and I have a good idea. I've never entered the political process. Do I have to know people? How friendly is it to someone like me? Well, I think you'll find it pretty welcoming. One of the things is that not enough people speak up. So when you do speak up, the legislators really are happy to hear from you. I would encourage you to remember that these are people just like you that have been elected to office and are trying to work towards the best Hawaii we can come up with. Every legislator is different, of course. There are all kinds of personalities in the building. We can help you find out 
out who the office managers are, for example, so that you've got a name when you're approaching an office and you can say, hi, I'd like to speak to so-and-so and speak to the office manager in order to try to set up a meeting with the legislator. Is this how it works across all state legislatures or is this simply Hawaii? No, we're lucky to live in Hawaii. Alaska has a full service office like this, but we did a survey a few years ago and we could not find any other states with full service public access rooms available for their citizens. What are a few things, some tips that you could give somebody to make a successful bill that would become a law? Some insider scoop here. <laughs> well, I guess one of the things is trying to find a law that's needed so that you can convince the legislators why this is a good idea, to teach them about the problem and why this is a good solution. So I think a lot of it comes down to having a good idea, being able to summarize that. You know, we, we encourage people to try to come up with a one-minute speech to bring up the most important points so that when you're offering testimony, you can be right up front with, I'm in strong support, and this is why, really present your point of view. Bills can be very simple. They can be just a page long or they can be an inch thick. I mean, they, you know, you see a bill on condominiums and things, and but we have on the Public Access Room YouTube page, you can view a little video that talks about how to read a bill, how to read a resolution, to help kind of dissect that. So, you know, okay, this is the purpose section, and then, okay, here we're changing the books of codified law, and at the very end is the effective date, to make it a little more digestible. How has this affected what you think about in terms of participation in the democratic process? It's really inspiring to me when I see someone who's quite cynical when they approach us and then we talk to them and we help them to get their voice to where it needs to go. And over a couple of years, suddenly they're a regular advocate at the legislature. That's really good to see. You don't have to be a voting age. We do see a lot of young people getting involved, which is wonderful. Some classes have gotten involved and shown up for testimony and things like that. It's a wide range of people who come out to testify. And the other thing to remember is that when we think of offering testimony, you think of speaking to the committee. You can also just do written testimony. If you're, okay, I'm a little shy, I don't feel like standing up and being recorded, fine. Put it in writing, and the public access room can help you with submitting your testimony on the website. And if you don't have a computer, you can go to a public library and use their computers, or you can come into the public access room and use one of ours. We try to be as welcoming as possible and try to encourage people to really add their voice to the process. We don't want the legislature to have to do it alone. We want them to hear from the public about their experience, about what makes sense in their lives for the different laws that they're considering. Hi, my name is Keanu Young. I'm the assistant coordinator of the Public Access Room. During session, we spend a lot of time answering questions and teaching people about the legislative process. Is it too late to participate in this process? Would I wait to the next session? How does this work? It's never too late to participate in the legislative process. Um, there's bills introduced every year that deal with all kinds of subjects. And so even though we've passed the bill introduction cutoff deadline, um, there's still bills that may affect you. And the website is a great resource to find those types of bills. And you can see um, what's been introduced and then keep track of them. So if you want to testify on them, if they get scheduled, you're able to do that. People are usually busy year-round. So it's a year-long commitment to getting good legislation passed. What if the bill dies? Do people keep coming back and coming back? 
when bills die, they die for that particular session. In Hawaii, we have a biennial legislature, so it's a two-year session starting in an odd-numbered year and ending in an even-numbered year. And the significance of that is any bill that doesn't make it this year automatically carries over to next year, and the legislature could move the bill at that time if they want to. Sometimes bills get introduced every year and they die. And I think the trick with those bills is finding out what's wrong with them and who has control over them, which committee chairs have control over them, and talk to them about the concerns they have for either not scheduling the bills for a hearing or for scheduling them and deferring them or holding them, not moving them forward, just to find out what could be done to move the bill forward. Hi, I'm Liz Koo. I'm one of the assistant researchers this legislative session. I think it's great in that we get to really see democracy in action every day. Sometimes it seems like it's just voting is the only way to get things done. And then what do you do after voting, right? There's a lot that can be done and it's amazing. It, it makes you feel very empowered. Like you you can participate, you can do something. It's, it's very cool. Do you think you you might want to run for office someday? <laughs> um, I mean, right now I don't think so, but I like what I'm learning. You know, the people that we're meeting, it's, it's very inspiring, honestly. I, I love it. My name is Brandon Masoka, and my title here is the Bill Summary Supervisor. Our office is the Legislative Reference Bureau Systems Office. We run a database that has all the bills and resolutions and all the legislative pieces of information that go back to 1983. If I'm ordinary citizen X and I want to get involved with the democratic process and introduce a bill, what would my relationship be with this office? You could ask us for some bill status information any information regarding the history of bills, and then we could help you search for uh, some of those bills that may be hard to find, and uh, we would be glad to uh, help you out. Great, and how might this differ from the public access room? We kind of work in tandem with the public access room. We would probably have a little bit more to say on the computer aspect of finding bills and so forth. So that's kind of our specialty is to find that bill, that needle in the haystack, so to speak. People can call up our office and get information on bill status or bill histories. We're glad to help the public in any way we can. And I won't be put on hold forever? No, no, no. He'll be, he'll be uh, patched into our office. And then depending on who's here, we'll, we'll love to help you. I would say um, everyone should spend at least a session here working at the Capitol, either as a, a staff member or volunteer, or even if you want to run for office, that's fine too. So I, w I would recommend uh, everyone to spend some time at their Capitol. The uh, Hawaii Public Access Room at our state capitol building is funded by the legislature to encourage public participation in uh, the process of lawmaking. An interesting fact, it apparently is one of only two public access rooms in the entire nation. HBR Stephanie Hahn spoke with uh, Virginia Beck and others to understand how we can all get involved in this legislative process and actually write and present a bill. It's a year-long process, and it's never too late to let your views be heard. Well, it's time for us to go now, but tomorrow we learn about the local band called The Green and a Hawaii, Hawaii language contest. Got a story you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And a reminder, you can find our archive shows online by searching for the Conversation Podcast on Spotify and Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. Thank you.